Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Blitis. And I'm Jacob Schechter. In this podcast, we will be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy this conversation and that you learn something new. Hello and welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I'm your temporary host, Jacob Sheckman, and I'm a PhD candidate of Polymer Science and Engineering. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Joshua Tropp about conjugated polymers and their role in our daily lives. Dr. Tropp received his PhD in Polymer Science and Engineering from the University of Southern Mississippi, focusing his work on chemical sensing technology for environmental pollutants. Dr. Tropp was also recently awarded the 2020 CAS Future Leader Distinction, a significant and global honor for young scientists. Dr. Tropp has continued his work here at the University of Southern Mississippi and, as of the day of this interview, has just accepted a position as a postdoctoral student at Northwestern University, where he will be continuing his research career working on bioelectronic materials. I am fortunate to know Dr. Tropp personally, as we have been good friends since beginning our PhD journey together here at Southern Mississippi in 2015. So... As you'll notice, I, I I will just break so many times and call Dr. Trop Josh because I don't usually refer to him as Dr. Trop. That said, Dr. Trop, welcome. Glad to have you on the show. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> I'm glad. So in helping our audience get to know and understand who you are, can you tell us just a little bit, how did you end up here at Southern Miss? Did you always think, you know, I, I want to study polymer science? Yeah, so I first started my journey at Washington and Jefferson College, which is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I studied chemistry. And during that time, I did an REU, a research experience for undergraduates at the University of Southern Mississippi my junior year. And that is what introduced me for the first time to polymer science, because polymer science isn't very commonly taught in traditional chemistry departments uh, in any capacity. And once I'd seen how Uh, applicable these polymers wore to our daily lives. It got me very much interested in them, and I pursued my PhD in polymer science and engineering. Wonderful. And you've been working in the Azali Research Group focusing in conjugated polymers. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, not just a little bit, tell us a lot about the work that you've done and what, what is exactly, what is a conjugated polymer? What is chemical sensing technology? Conjugated polymers are very different from what you traditionally think of when you think about a polymer. So everybody is familiar with what we consider aliphatic polymers, so non-conjugated. These are the things that make up our clothing. They make up us, for example, where DNA, carbohydrates, you know, and proteins and all of these are polymers. And most of the things that you buy involve some type of aliphatic polymer. But conjugated polymers are actually fairly new when we consider polymer science as a whole. So in 2000, that is when the Nobel Prize was awarded to Alan Heeger and two others for their developments in conjugated polymers. So there's many different applications that you could uh, now create with a conjugated polymer that you were not able to make with traditional uh, insulating polymers that do not conduct electricity of any kind. So these lead to alternatives for semiconductors. So the semiconductor industry has changed our lives dramatically over the years. So when we think about semiconducting devices in particular, you think about 
the electronic properties that are afforded through semiconductors in particular, and how they're used in logic gates, which are the building blocks of digital circuits, uh, like microprocessors, transistors, and all other types of devices. And the most common being a MOSFET, uh, M-O-S-F-E-T. There's billions of these things that are produced every single year. But these are made out of traditional inorganic materials. So this is the only other alternative that really conducts electricity other than something like a conjugated polymer. And while these are great and these afforded technologies that we use on a day-to-day basis, so these are the, the things that make up the insides of your computer and your cell phone and all these things that have made our lives so great over the last couple of decades, the problem is how expensive they are to produce. So when you try to make uh, any of these processors, you need to use cryogenic temperatures. Uh, you're not able to make them in large areas. They're not very processable, the inorganics that we use to make them. So there was really a need at the time for some sort of alternative. So back in the late 70s, when Alan Heger was able to demonstrate electrical conductivity with polyacetylene, it was like this huge door had opened. And conjugated polymers and just any organic material are synthetically tunable. So we're able to finally control their electronic properties through synthetic chemistry, which is amazing because inorganics and ceramics and any other inorganic alternative are not very tunable. So this opened the door to sensing technologies, organic photovoltaics, um, all sorts of different applications have been demonstrated over the years uh, with conjugated polymers. And the most exciting being flexible electronics, degradable electronics is, is a very interesting new field, and then bioelectronics. So can you give us a, a few examples of products that we, I mean, you have, you have already in this discussion, but can you be more explicit about what, what exactly are we using in our day-to-day lives that uh, utilizes flexible electronics or conjugated polymer material? So the, the most common one that everyone's heard of, everyone's heard of a, an OLED. So organic light emitting diodes, these are using conjugated polymers. There are many different layers within your cell phone. Uh, they're now using conjugated polymers. There's still a limitation in using conjugated polymers for many of these applications. Um, There needs to be advancements in being able to mass produce uh, these polymers, but they are already starting to be incorporated uh, into many things that we buy on a day-to-day basis. So what's what's different about a conjugated polymer compared to an aliphatic polymer? What, What allows these conjugated polymers to conduct electricity almost as well as these inorganic materials? Yeah, that's a great question. So Conjugated polymers have these unoccupied P orbitals, and this allows for a route, uh, for lack of a better word, for these electrons uh, to to be mobile. Um, So they operate very similarly to an inorganic semiconductor, uh, where you can use what's called a charge carrier that is able to move throughout the material. And conjugated polymers have these overlapping P orbitals to allow for the mobility of these charge carriers. Maybe you can synthetically tune the structure of these conjugated polymers to make it better or worse at allowing for these carriers to be mobile. We literally call that the mobility uh, of the polymer. What do you mean by you can tune them to make it better or worse? Like, is there an example where you do want kind of a low conductivity for these materials? It really matters on the application. There are a lot of different reasons you would use a conjugated polymer. And sometimes you're trying to tune what we call the band gap to be able to have color control. So uh, if you wanted something to emit blue light versus red light, you would need to control the planarity and uh, what we call the topology of the polymer. And that's actually what I play with when I make my sensing technologies. I make fluorescent sensors. These polymers will absorb light. And when they emit, you can control that color of emission or whether they uh, emit light at all. 
So I'm playing around with the structure of my conjugated polymers so that they can selectively turn on or off their fluorescence or their color in response to a given analyte. And let's go into that. So you, you were making some sensing technology for environmental pollutants. How, how does that work? What, what kind of pollutants are we talking about? How are you able to use the polymers that you make to identify between all the different compounds that you're looking for? Yeah, so in 2010, there was that BP oil spill that occurred at the Deepwater Horizon site. The University of Southern Mississippi is located right by the Gulf Coast. And we were given money by the National Science Foundation to investigate the concentration and circulation of common pollutants that you would find from something like an oil spill or just common environmental pollutants in general. So these all include uh, nutrients like phosphates and nitrates. These come from agricultural runoff. And these will actually devastate different ecosystems because a small excess of nitrate or phosphate that you would find in your fertilizer will feed algae. And these algae, as they grow, we call it a bloom, they will actually deplete oxygen content and that will kill off fish, which is known as a fish kill. So there are many different types of water pollution related issues that are interrelated to each other that all stem from very small changes in nutrient concentration. There's also polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. This is a fancy name for different benzene rings that are put together in different ways. And these are found naturally, but they're also found in uh, the burning of fossil fuels and through oil. Uh, the problem being that there are so many different types of polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that making a sensor that's sensitive and selective for one, but not another, is a huge challenge. Uh, just synthetically speaking, uh, making something that has a, an arm uh, or a receptor chemistry that works for just one polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon and not another is a, is a tremendous challenge. And then there's, of course, heavy metals. Um, that are common toxic pollutants that we find in seawater. So I was developing different types of conjugated polymers that were able to discriminate and detect the differences between uh, one pollutant and another uh, at very low concentrations and the hardest part in complex aqueous environments like the Gulf of Mexico. So how how did you approach that challenge when once you sort of got to into your, your research and you were figuring out, okay, this is what I'm going to try and work on, what, how did you, how did you f- figure out how to get over that hurdle in identifying these very similar but different compounds? Yeah. So whenever you make a chemical sensing technology, you have to think about the analyte, the thing that you're trying to detect, and that will let you know what how you're going to transduce your signal. So uh, to be more specific, there are colorimetric sensors where there's just a change in color when your analyte is present. Uh, there are fluorescent sensors where there's a change in fluorescence uh, when your analyte is present. Um, there's also uh, electronic sensors, and there are also uh, piezoelectric sensors, there's all sorts of different types of mass-based sensors. Uh, so you have to think, okay, what is my analyte, and what is specific and special about my analyte so that I could differentiate it from whatever else might be in the sample. So for polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, it was a huge challenge because most sensors before uh, our, our example, which was published in Chemical Science in 2019, people were trying to focus on their size and shape. And this is done through supermolecular chemistry, where you make some sort of a synthetic handle that'll grab onto the analyte, in this case, the PAH. The problem with that technique is that you cannot tell the difference between one pH and another because they're so similar structurally. So when we were approaching this problem, we, we didn't go there at all. We thought, okay, well, what is unique about each of the PAHs that we could use to differentiate them? And that led us to the unique optical properties of each of these PAHs. They have very distinct optical profiles, and we used a new 
fairly new signal transduction mechanism known as the inner filter effect, which was a way that we were able to control the fluorescence of our conjugated polymers. And then we used machine learning algorithms to break down that data set so that we were able to discriminate uh, 16 different PAHs that were all identified as toxic by the EPA at the same time at very low concentrations. And this idea has led to several other sensors that we've published since then on other pollutants. What does it look like when you're using one of these sensors, whether it's for the PAH or, or for detecting pollutants in water? How are these technologies employed? Yeah, so the, the biggest problem that environmental scientists, marine scientists were having is that they basically had to do analytical manipulations on a boat while the boat was moving. So believe it or not, they actually have these fume hoods that they put in the boat so that they're able to use like a burette, like an analytical chemistry lab, and do titrations, which no one was able to do in a, in a still laboratory, let alone a moving laboratory, right? <laughs> so uh, I go on this boat, and, and I'm looking at these, these scientists do this. I'm like, this is terrible. The better solutions involve some sort of very easy mixing of A and B. They don't even know what A and B is. They put them together, and then they put it in a colorimeter, and it gives them a number. And that is pretty uh, insensitive to the moving of the vessel. So that's kind of how our system works. We use what is known as a plate reader, which is just a regular UV vis or fluorimeter, and you have 384 wells, and they're really, really tiny wells because you need to fit them all on one plate. And these are commercial. They've been commercial for a while. And all you have to use is a um, micropipette to add in our polymer into you know each of the wells, and then you add your environmental sample, and we collect at many different wavelengths, and we use our machine learning algorithm with a, with a training data set that we've done before we even get on the boat to be able to differentiate what's in that boat. So the, the basic answer to your question is you mix our polymer ink or a solution with the, uh, the environmental sample. And you click a couple buttons and it works pretty well. And we've actually demonstrated uh, successfully our sensors working out on the Deepwater Horizon site on the USM Point Sur, which is the name of their boat. Yeah, we did it in, in their water, so in that really gross Gulf Coast water. Sure. Yeah. And so what has come of that since? Uh, so a lot has came of it, some of which I can talk about, some of which I can't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but we, so that was a very interesting example where we demonstrated this new signal transduction event, so this, uh, this inner filter effect, which before this was, was really thought of as an error in optical spectroscopy measurements. And we demonstrated that for the first time being used with machine learning algorithms. So that provided selectivity uh, when generally that inner filter effect isn't very selective. So this opened the door to the detection and discrimination of other uh, common uh, optically absorbing pollutants. So in this year, 2020, we published another paper where we discriminated different azo dyes. So azo dyes are used to color textiles, so different fabrics, paper, leathers, cosmetics, and even food. And they've been banned in many countries recently because they found that they were actually carcinogenic. But the big problem was there were so many different types of azo dyes. So there are thousands and thousands of different azo dyes. Uh, many of them are only different by a single methyl group or a single naphthyl group. And these are uh, persistent, so they exist in, in water for a very long time. And actually, they're the most polluting uh, wastewater effluent of all industrial sectors. So while a lot of people haven't heard of these, these are actually very polluting. And being able to detect them at very low concentrations was very important, but the same issue that happened with the PAHs happened with these azo dyes. I can make a sensor, but it's not going to be able to tell the difference between that azo dye and that azo dye. So we used the same method, this inner filter effect method with the machine learning, and we were able to differentiate uh, over a dozen different azo dyes 
all with one sensor. And this could have been extended to any color azo dye that we wanted, and it involved the systematic adjustment of our conjugated polymer um, to basically get the proper optical uh, overlap we needed to make the sensor work. Can you can you explain a little more what the inner filter effect is? I you know I've I read it in some of the papers that you sent me, and, and we hear it now. But I, I'm still not fully understanding what exactly that implies. Sure. So there are many different types of signal transduction events that you uh, could use fluorescence for. So there's um, forced or resonance energy transfer. This is commonly known as FRET. There is also uh, photoinduced electron transfers. There's all different ways that you could play with your molecules to change the fluorescence of your polymer or even your small molecule. But the problem with most of them is that they require the two molecules that are interacting to, to interact. They need to be uh, in physical proximity. Um, they also need a certain molecular or uh, uh, geometry orientation. It's very, very specific. So a lot of the times you need to make these really interesting handles to grab the two molecules and bring them together. Or they need to be of opposite charges so that they attract each other um, so that they can get close to one another. And that creates a significant problem for analytes that do not have receptor chemistries, of which there are many. So the inner filter effect operates slightly differently. You can imagine when light comes and hits a molecule, it will excite that molecule and it will emit light. But imagine another molecule that's in that same solution that absorbs at very similar wavelengths. What will happen is that a high enough concentration of that secondary compound, it'll prevent light from hitting your analyte of interest and you will artificially see a decrease in the emission because there was less light that hit it. And it's really that simple. And that was actually the problem with this, uh, this method, this inner filter effect, is that it wasn't very selective. If I had 10 different molecules that all had very similar absorption features, they would all quench the fluorescence of that analyte similarly. So there was no way that I could get selectivity with an inner filter effect-based sensor. But if I had a couple different molecules that had uh, small differences in their optical properties, and I collected all of that optical data, the fluorescence and the absorption, uh, when um, titrating each of my polymers with that analyte, I get small differences in fluorescence quenching that we could understand with machine learning algorithms. So alone, the inner filter effect is not selective. But if you operated the sensor with multiple different sensing elements that were all slightly different, uh, we're actually able to get this differentiation between similar analytes using uh, these machine learning algorithms. Amazing. Now, let's go back to, bring it back to the topic of just conjugated polymers. What exactly, can, if you can go into detail as to why can't you do what, you are, what you're talking about now with a, just a normal aliphatic polymer? So, uh, aliphatic polymers generally don't absorb light. Um, or at least very well, and, and they generally don't emit. You usually need some sort of conjugated structure to get what is called a band gap to be narrow enough so that the energy that it's uh, absorbing, the difference between the HOMO and the LUMO, that energy level is roughly the uh, the same wavelength. Of no, HOMO and LUMO is, is... The highest occupied molecular orbital and the lowest unoccupied molecular orbital. And you need that energy difference between those two, what we call frontier molecular orbitals, uh, to have an energy that's roughly the wavelength of visible light. Um, and that only happens in conjugated structures. So that's why we have to make conjugated polymers. Um, and you have a very similar problem if you want to have uh, electrical conductivity. You need these polymers to have a narrow enough band gap to be able to uh, conduct. Yeah, okay. Now, we've talked a lot about how conjugated polymers are used in light sensing applications. 
Now, how about in some of the other bits of technology that conjugated polymer can be used? Are there other examples of work coming out of your lab? So we've been working with these things called organic field effect transistors, and basically all it is is that same conjugated polymer as a layer within your device. And based on different receptor chemistries that you could incorporate within that semiconductor, you could change the current of that device. And by looking at the difference in current, when the analyte is present and when the analyte isn't present, you can make an electronic sensor. And these don't operate, uh, these don't require the need of light to excite your molecule like they did for those optical sensors. And so how, how exactly is it utilizing these, the, the electricity? You mentioned there's the, the use of a source, a drain, and, and a gate. What, what exactly are you referring to there? And how, how, what is the function of each of those pieces? So generally when you have these electronic devices that use an inorganic material, that inorganic material is a semiconductor. So based on the, the structure of that material, you are able to make it conduct electricity if you add or remove an electron or a hole. We could do the same thing with a conjugated polymer. So all we're doing is taking something that either starts conducting electricity and then we stop it from conducting electricity or something that doesn't conduct electricity and now it does. So we're turning this electricity, this electric signal on or off. That is all this device is doing. And we can make it selective for whatever analyte we're trying to detect if we engineer the polymer to have some sort of receptor or selective chemistry for the analyte we're trying to detect. Wow. So the, the stuff that you guys in, in your group are already is incredible. And right, the, the amount of polymer molecular level engineering that you're able to do is amazing. So what is the, what is the overall state of, of conducting polymers? So right, where, where does this technology stand right now? And where do you see it going in the future? So everyone has a different take on this that works in the field. When you talk to a surgeon and uh, they're, they're talking to a patient, uh, that the surgeon always wants to perform surgery. Uh, I'm a synthetic chemist, so I always look at things through the lens of synthetic chemistry. And when I look at this field, I, I see a lack of growth synthetically. Most applications that use a conjugated polymer are really focused on this one very famous one, P.PSS. In fact, you'll read these papers and they'll, they'll call it the fruit fly. Sometimes in the image, they'll even put a fly. You know, that's how common this material is. And it's really because there's a split between those that are able to make new chemistries and those that are able to effectively utilize those chemistries. So our group, I think is fairly special in that we are looking at everything through the lens of a synthetic chemist. Um, and we work with other people that aren't synthetic chemists to really make our devices and use them for particular applications. And I think that's where the future of conjugated polymers and conductive polymers really is. I don't think that P.PSS is going to be the polymer that changes the world. I think that it's great that it's commercially available, but there are other polymers that are more conductive. There are other polymers that are better for all sorts of different applications. But that is the polymer that if you wanted to try to play with organic electronics, that you're going to buy and you're going to use. So that's, that's where we're working with uh, right now. We have a couple examples of really interesting properties for a conjugated polymer. I was fortunate to be involved in a project that was recently published in Science Advances, where we demonstrated a conductive polymer that had organic magnetism, but didn't have any metals in it. Um, you know, that's a wild new example uh, that people are working on right now. We have a couple of examples in our group for infrared photo detectors. So trying to play with different wavelengths of light 
that are typically um, hard to make detectors for. There are plenty of different applications. I don't work in the solar cell field, but I know that that's a, a huge uh, organic solar cells are really, really common, and they use all sorts of different uh, conjugated polymers. So I think that over the next couple of decades, you're going to see a lot of advancements that are going to be driven through synthetic design uh, rather than uh, processing. But maybe that's just through the lens that I, I generally view science. Sure. Is there anything that you see maybe being developed or coming out as being very big within the, just the next five years, anything really soon? Yeah, there's one field that I think is really interesting in particular, and I actually recently started dipping my toes into it. So I think bioelectronics is very interesting. And they have a very interesting set of problems that they're trying to deal with. So bioelectronics involves uh, biosensors, so sensors that you can incorporate with cells and other bioelectronic biological elements, um, and then tissue regeneration. And all of these require materials that are non-toxic, uh, that are fairly flexible, which is something you can't get with typical inorganics, um, and can conduct electricity or ions. And really, the field has landed on conjugated polymers. Uh, but over the last de couple decades, they ran into the same problem that I was talking about earlier, that you only see polyaniline, polyperol, and uh, polythiophene, and then uh, PDOT. And, and it's really those four polymer scaffolds and almost virtually nothing else. Wow. Okay. So let's go into a little bit about the, the tissue engineering. How, how exactly does a, uh, a conjugated polymer biosensor, how, how is that employed in this sort of a material? So I, I want to start with uh, saying that this still isn't being done you know, commercially. You're not going to go to a hospital and see something like this. Um, one of the nice things about being a graduate student or a postdoc in the sciences, is that you get to see things maybe 10, 20 years before anyone else has heard from. But the basic idea is that regeneration in tissue or muscle or bone is a complex process, which is just an interplay of the extracellular matrix, synthesis, cell-to-cell -cell interactions, and uh, growth interactions. So they're very special cells that are signaled to facilitate repair. And the idea is that you could target these cells to uh, enhance regeneration. And conjugated polymers could direct what's called a cell phenotype or its function and the immune response through electrical stimulation. So many of the things we were talking about earlier, how conjugated polymers could conduct electricity, it's the same process that we're playing with, but now to direct certain cells. And this is just a subset of bioelectronics. Wait, wait, wait. Let, me, let me try and make sure I understand. So the, in, in you know, 10, 20 years, this, this stuff, it works, right? What's happening is you, the, the conjugated polymers that you've turned into this conducting biomaterial is directing energy toward specific sets of cells. Yeah, it's stimulating very specific types of cells that are related to regeneration within the body to pro, uh, proliferate. That's, that's what we're doing. So what, what, 20 years down the line, what does that look like? like I, I've got a big gash on my arm that I can't fix myself. I can't just put a Band-Aid on it. So I go to the hospital. What do they do with this material? So again, this, this doesn't exist yet. Right, but right. the way I would imagine it um, would be a patch uh, that would have this conjugated polymer embedded biomaterial that they could stimulate. Um, they would stimulate that patch that would be placed over your wound, and that would stimulate the proliferation of certain cells that are required with healing that wound. Um, and there have already been several examples uh, in, in mice um, and other uh, animals. None of them work as well or 
maybe one works as well as uh, other methods that use electrical stimulation. But again, this field is very, very young. As I was mentioning, I, I was recently reading a review that was going over all the different polymers they used, and, and it's really three or four of them. And I think that these really interesting uh, fields that are at the interface at multiple different fields uh, are going to require a lot of time. It's, it's going to take another decade or two before we really have an idea of how this is going to work practically. Right. I think that this field is just too young to really be able to see that far in the future, but it's coming. And it's really exciting, uh, especially the idea of bone regeneration. I mean, we've known for decades that bone is piezoelectric so that there's some sort of relationship between uh, material deformation and electricity. And people have been trying for years to find a way to uh, specifically target bone regeneration, but it just really hasn't been done uh, with a conjugated material yet. But I would not be surprised if in the next couple of years you see a paper in Science or Nature about it. So uh, again, I, and we, you know, we're understanding that this is could be decades away, but we're what we're envisioning right now is that you're you're applying this material to to something in the body that needs regenerating, and basically running electricity through it to help the body just promote on its own mechanisms regeneration, yep. which is incredible. What what a thing! This is so the, the the future of conjugated polymers in just one area. Now, how exactly you mentioned there were just a few polymers that are are used for this technique. So what's the basic procedure in, in developing them or modifying these polymers to, to apply to these tissue engineering properties? So from a synthetic point of view, whenever we're making these polymers, there's a couple different techniques. And the techniques that are being employed are specifically being employed because of how easy they are. Um, so polyaniline, uh, polythiophenes, all these different polymers uh, could be made electrochemically. So they could use like a, uh, a cell and they can grow their polymer on an electrode surface. That's one really common way. Or they do certain methods that are very easy to perform, but they only allow for homopolymers. So if we look into the OPV, the organic field effect transistor uh, literature, we find these donor acceptor conjugated polymers, which have higher mobilities. They have interesting properties that you cannot get in these conjugated homopolymers. But the problem is that they involve uh, very specific and challenging chemical syntheses. So this is a Stille cross-coupling, a Suzuki cross-coupling, a lot of these um, palladium-catalyzed cross-couplings. In fact, there was a uh, Nobel Prize that was awarded to them. I think it was in 2010, don't quote me. Uh, for these, <laughs> Too late, that's recorded. It's recorded forever. <laughs> uh, for these different syntheses. And while they were really uh, important for uh, the development of drugs, um, which is what they were primarily used for, they also opened this whole door to conjugated polymer synthesis. Uh, so when I look at the future of these materials, I'm, I'm looking at maybe um, more interesting and challenging to make materials that maybe have uh, better electronic properties. Now, there's a whole other side to the conjugated polymer story uh, for bioelectronics in general. And you need to have something that gives it um, specific solubility um, and uh, ionic conductivity. And this requires usually uh, ethylene glycol-based chains, uh, there's been some examples of conjugated polyelectrolytes where they put charged species off of the conjugated backbone. So there's some tailoring that you could do with these side chains to make them better for these applications. And that is what's happening right now. If you were to go in the literature and you were going to look up JAK's chemistry of materials, you would, you would run into polythiophene derivatives that have peg chains off of them. And how long should the peg chains be? Should the peg chains be branched? Um, how long should the polymer be? And that's what is going on now. 
just people, uh, and, and they're doing a very good job of it, systematically changing the side chains and the chemical identity of the backbone to see how well they can work for these bioelectronic applications. And if you're interested in, in research groups that you would want to look up on, Ian McCullough, uh, Jonathan Rivnay, Bjorn Lessum, there's all sorts of different scientists all around the country that are doing a very good job at this. Amazing. Now, how, how exactly are these, is the, the quality of, of these, any of these different conjugated polymers for this type of application tested? What, what exactly are researchers looking for to say, okay, yeah, we should move forward with this polymer here? So what they'll do is they'll, let's say you're trying to make an organic device. Um, one example that I know of is the organic field effect transistor. Another example is an organic uh, electrochemical transistor, uh, OECT. And they'll just take this, this polymer, they'll spin a film with it, and they'll, they'll test um, different figures of merit. And for each type of device, there's a different figure of merit. Sometimes it's mobility, sometimes it's transconductance, whatever it may be for that device. And they'll just make several different modifications on the polymers, and they'll try to compare that figure of merit. And then they'll move on from there. The problem that's really limiting this field is that there's only a, a couple different research groups around the country that are making different polymers for these applications. So even if you could come up with a polymer that has a better figure of merit for that application, it's not P.PSS and I can't buy it in a suspension and have it sent to me and shipped to me. So until some of these research groups take the next step and start trying to commercialize these polymers and mass produce them, uh, that's when we're really going to see um, some change and maybe... Uh, more growth in this field. And you see this in the organic community all the time. Someone will make an interesting catalyst, they'll make an interesting small molecule, and then they'll work with Sigma Aldridge or whoever it is to commercialize it. And you can go online and you can find different groups selling their chemicals right out of their laboratory. And I think that something like that needs to start being done with conjugated polymers. Maybe maybe that's the next step for you, huh? Just figure out how to make the conjugated polymer that's needed, sell it. I think uh, my boss will beat me there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Clearly, you've earned your spot as a as a cast future leader. The the things that you've worked on are are truly amazing, and the the technology that they're going to be applied for, I, I can't wait to see it happen. Um, I, and as long as I've known Doctor Trop, you ask him to make a polymer, he can do it, and it doesn't have to be conjugated. He could it could be anything. So, is there? Do you have a a, a sort of dream oh man maybe this would be too close to your own personal ip but is there like a dream material a dream technology that you would like to to bring to the world if you ask a lot of synthetic chemists that uh, they will land on uh, sequence control uh, that's a really interesting idea that is still really it, it's in its infancy when we compare our synthetic capabilities to that of biology it's really lacking um, if in your cells, uh, you know, in your body, you're able to make proteins with very specific sequences. And this is something that's done automatically. Being able to control the primary sequence of not just a conjugated polymer, but any aliphatic polymer is something that's really lacking. And everyone's trying. There's some very interesting examples that have been shown in the literature, but you really can't get past 10 units. Uh, there's solid state peptide synthesis, which is, you know, our synthetic version of it. But even that takes a very long time, and you are limited to how long you're able to make something. Uh, so that would be the overall dream one day, to be able to control the sequence of a conjugated polymer, of an aliphatic polymer, and be able to do that on a very large scale. Because even if you could do it, 
you probably couldn't make a couple make more than a couple megs of this of this stuff. So to be able to make multi-gram sequence controlled polymers would be an unbelievable achievement. Whoever does it will get a Nobel Prize. Maybe, maybe, Josh, someday. Now, before we go, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to to do your PhD work here at, at the University of Southern Mississippi? Because as as many people might react when they hear this and, and as we've as we've seen others react when they ask us where we study, they ask Mississippi. So how, ex- explain that. How, what was it like being here in Mississippi and, and doing your work at this university? Well, the University of Southern Mississippi has a very rich history when it comes to polymer science and engineering. It was one of the first departments that was ever solely dedicated to polymer science. Many uh, huge advancements uh, in polymer chemistry were developed at the same, you know, not the same building because they rebuilt the building in like 2000, but the same department that we got our PhDs in. So what's really nice about the polymer science department is that everybody in the entire building works on polymer science and engineering. And while that sounds to, you know, the, the average person, well, isn't that how it is everywhere? It is not how it is everywhere. There's very few departments in the country that have an entire department that every single person does polymer science and engineering. Uh, many people travel to our university to give talks, and they're the one person in their university that works on polymer science. And they're surrounded by chemists or you know biologists or whoever it may be. So it's very interesting to be around people that work in all the different fields of polymer science all under one roof. And we have all the instrumentation that you would ever need to look at a polymer all in one building. If you were running your own research group out of uh, some random university, you may not have all the um, thermomechanical characterization instrumentation that you need while also have, uh, having scattering available to you, uh, while also having GPCs scattered throughout the building in 10 different solvents. Uh, but we have all of that in the same building. So if anyone is listening to this and needs help characterizing their polymers or needs other expertise in polymer science, you know, there's probably someone at the University of Southern Mississippi that could help you because we have uh, experts in rheology. We have experts in all sorts of different areas of polymer science, synthetically, not just conjugated polymers, aliphatic polymers, um, everything. Right. Now, if someone wanted to, they're listening to this and thinking, oh man, I happen to have a question about something I think Dr. Trop can answer. How can they find you? So it's very hard to find me. Um, I only have a LinkedIn. I don't have other social media as of yet. Um, but you can find me at my LinkedIn, uh, Joshua Tropp, uh, T-R-O-P-P. You could also get me at my email, which is just my name, joshua.tropp at usm.edu. Um, but yeah. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Josh. I really appreciate it. And thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. And thank you all for those of you listening. My name is Jacob Sheckman, and this is the Polymer Science Podcast. <laughs> <laughs>